This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 19th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. At today's Cato Sponsor Briefing, Cato Executive Vice President David Bowes spoke online with Cato sponsors, answering their questions about his new book, The Libertarian Mind, A Manifesto for Freedom. I wrote this book because I thought the world needed a contemporary overview of libertarianism. There are a lot of great books like Atlas Shrugged and The Constitution of Liberty and The Road to Serfdom. Um, There are a lot of books on specific topics and Cato publishes a lot of those. But I thought there should be a book that libertarians would read to better understand their own philosophy and would give to their friends and family members who have some curiosity about libertarianism. And, And I hope that's what I've done. Okay, uh, just to get into some contemporary stuff. Of course, there are some huge issues that libertarians have very pointed opinions on. But I'll start with something that was just in the news in the last couple of days. President Obama has suggested recently that uh, voting uh, be mandatory. Uh, he calls the idea potentially transformative. So, what is a basic libertarian take on that? And how, more generally, how do libertarians approach issues when they when they think about whether or not a proposal is good or bad? Well, of course, the first thing we think about is that in a free society, the presumption ought to be liberty. So people ought to be free to make their own decisions so long as they are not harming the equal rights of other people. And so if I say, you know, people ought to read more Shakespeare, uh, that's a fine opinion. And if I'm a teacher or a minister, I might talk about it. But I, I should not be able to make that mandatory that you should read more Shakespeare or that I should eat more salads, even though those probably both be good for us. Um, and I sort of see the mandatory voting issue in the same way. We shouldn't mandate things that we don't have to. And I guess on that one, I would also say, if you really don't care enough to vote, then I don't want you voting. Now, if you do care enough to vote, I still probably don't want you voting because you probably got crazy ideas that you want to go in and get somebody to mandate. But my general general view would be we shouldn't make things mandatory. Your book, Libertarianism, a Primer, was published in the late 1990s, and uh, I vaguely recall those were pretty good economic times. Uh, We were not uh, at war, and now almost 20 years later, what are some of the topics that you deal with that are – that you might not have expected to ever have to cover in 1997. Well, I'm not sure about not expecting, although in some sense, you know, there was barely an internet in 1997. And so uh, in this book, I'm talking about the way the internet has changed, uh, to some extent, communications, um, uh, technology has changed other commercial activities like Uber and Lyft couldn't exist without the internet and smartphones and so on. Um, I think it's probably also the case that the internet, certainly the rise of computer technology has made NSA surveillance much more pervasive and much more possible. And so I do talk about the surveillance state in there. Um, So things like that are new. One of the things that disappointed me, because this is a revised and updated edition of Libertarianism, a primer, boy, I was optimistic about the progress of educational reform or educational freedom back in 1997. And here we are 18 years later and pretty much 90 percent of people still send their kids to the public schools and still say the public schools aren't very good. Uh, Doc Brock asks, was the Enlightenment a surge of libertarianism? (laughs) 
well, Doc, again, you should probably talk to a real historian. But yeah, my general view would be that uh, the Enlightenment challenged the idea that tradition and a book that only some people can read were the sources of knowledge. The Enlightenment said, let's look at the world around us and try to figure out how it works and maybe even whether we can make it work better. Um, now, Hayek distinguished between the Scottish Enlightenment, which he thought was much more focused on building on tradition um, and restrained in its understanding of human capabilities, especially human government capabilities. And he contrasted the Scottish Enlightenment with the French Enlightenment, which he regarded as too constructivist and rationalistic. He thought the French were more likely to say, aha, we have figured out the way the earth revolves around the sun or the way the world works, and now we can build a perfect society with perfect rules suited to human nature, not just the rule of don't hit other people and, and don't take their stuff, but rules directing how people ought to live in order to have that perfect society. I think broadly speaking, though, the Enlightenment said we do not have to listen to the kings and the nobility. We do not have to take the word of the priests and the bishops. We can read the Bible for ourselves. We can study science for ourselves. Uh, and we can study reason and Aristotle for ourselves and come to conclusions about the way the world worked. And that is sort of the, the precursor to liberalism. A question, uh, I'll take my privilege here. Uh, you talk in your book about separating conscience and state. What does that look like in practice? And uh, in recent examples, how do libertarians tend to fall on issues where that comes up? Well, we already separate conscience and state very effectively when it comes to religion. We came to the realization that we ought not only to have religious toleration, but to separate religion and state. Churches shouldn't run the government, government shouldn't run religion. When you think about why we want separation of religion and state, because it causes social conflict, uh, if you don't have uh, separation, because we might be wrong. This is part of the humility of libertarianism. We might be wrong to worship as we do or believe as we do, and therefore, as Hayek said, freedom is a discovery procedure. Competition is a discovery procedure. We want to discover better ways of understanding, better ways of living. So given that, why do we have one government school system? Schools also deal with matters of conscience, whether it's saying the Pledge of Allegiance or teaching a Catholic view of history. Um, all of those things uh, involve our conscience. So why not separate education and state? And then we could go on and say, why not separate medical care from the state? Because medical care in issues like abortion or genetic counseling and so on can also get into matters of conscience. Um, the arts. We have a national endowment for the arts. Think about that. A national government program to support certain arts and not others. I think we ought to separate art and state. All those things go together. And these things come up whenever there's a flap over the national endowment for the arts refusing to fund a certain artist. Um, when we find a company like Hobby Lobby being told you have to supply abortion products to your employees at your expense, even though you have moral objections, 
if we separated conscience and state, then basically we would leave the state doing a few specific things like protecting us from people who want to hit us or bomb us and otherwise leave everything else in society up to our individual conscience. Ken Hamilton asks, have you read Charles Cook's new book uh, on conservatarianism? And if so, what are your thoughts? Thanks, Ken. Um, I actually have read about half of it. It's one of those things I've been carrying around in my briefcase forever and have trouble uh, actually getting to. Not that it's a bad book, just that um, between the newspapers and the magazines and the demands of the job, I've had trouble actually finishing it. Um, It's a well-written book. It's interesting. But, you know, At some level, I've always thought that modern American conservatism is a confused amalgam of classical liberalism and classical conservatism. If you're a conservative in America because you believe in the principles of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, then you're pretty close to a libertarian. Real conservatism, it seems to me, means finding some point in the present or the past and saying that's when the world worked and let's go back to that or let's freeze it right here. I can't imagine modern American conservatives want to freeze society with an $18 trillion national debt and an overweening welfare state. So let's assume they want to go back to the 1950s or the 1850s. British conservatives or European conservatives might want to go back to the 1350s when everybody knew their place, which is a comforting thing. It's a comforting thing to know your place in the world. Uh, And in 1350, everybody did. Um, So it seems to me what Charles C.W. Cook has done is sort of take Reaganism and say, but I guess it's 2015. We're going to have to go along with gay marriage, although, boy, the gays sure are pushy about it. Um, And also, we should bomb a lot of countries uh, and police the world. So I'm not... I'm not convinced, and maybe if I read more of the book, I would become more convinced that there was something there. But I just think, to the extent that there's a gap between conservatism and libertarianism, I don't know that he's actually bridged it in any more interesting way than Frank Meyer did 50 years ago with the concept of fusionism, which was really, hey, conservatives and libertarians, we both don't like communism, and we both don't like the welfare state, and isn't that enough for now? A sponsor asks, are you a natural rights libertarian or a consequentialist utilitarian libertarian? And which way is the libertarian movement trending over the years? Well, I guess that's a good question. Um, I, as you can find out in, I believe it's chapter three, uh, am a natural rights libertarian. I believe that we do have uh, inalienable rights. I hold this truth to be self-evident, that it is wrong to initiate force against people who have not themselves initiated force. And so I do believe we have inalienable rights as uh, in virtue of our personhood. On the other hand, I don't think there's any conflict between that and consequentialism, and that's a, that's a reassuring fact. It tells us that we can arrive at libertarian principles from multiple uh, ways of thinking. We can do it through reason and natural rights. We can do it through the, the tools of economics and consequentialism. We can arrive at libertarian principles by looking at history. The American founders were very big on history. They looked at the few societies in history that had maintained ordered liberty and drew their constitutional principles from those societies. Um, I think that as the libertarian movement gets bigger, 
There are probably more people who are basically attacked uh, attracted to consequentialism. It turns out we look around the world, we compare the Soviet Union to the United States, we compare East Germany and West Germany, uh, we compare uh, pairs of countries all over the world, and we say, gee, the ones that approximate free markets and libertarianism are doing better than the ones that attempt to implement socialism and dirigism, as the French say, directing society. Natural rights seems in our time to be an idea that philosophers believe in as opposed to average Americans. On the other hand, the Declaration of Independence is a natural rights document, and it was read in, in bars and pubs all over America. So I don't think it's impossible for Americans to believe fundamentally in natural rights. But among libertarian scholars and activists, there's probably a growing trend uh, toward staking their claim on consequentialism or maybe on virtue ethics, the search for a society in which people can pursue the good life and flourish in that society. Uh, Catherine asks, many people identify libertarians as an extreme subset of the Republican Party. Do you see this as a problem, especially for young people? Yes, Catherine, I see that as a terrible problem. I hate being perceived as an extreme Republican or an extreme conservative. Um, it is true, as I was saying a minute ago, the fusionist idea of conservatism was, hey, we're all against communism, we're all against the welfare state, doesn't that really make us allies, whatever other differences we have. Um, these days, I think there are a number of personal freedom issues like the drug war, like uh, marriage equality, uh, as well as international issues. Conservatives have just been getting us into war after war. Um, I noticed today that uh, Meghan McCain wrote an article saying that Aaron Schock, who just resigned from Congress, is an embarrassment to the Republican Party. And I thought, really? More than a guy who wanted us to go to war with Russia? Like her father. Um, so. I think there are those differences, and you're absolutely right, to the extent that young people think libertarians are extreme conservatives, I think it hurts our ability to say, look, we're for peace and civil liberties and social equality. Um, libertarians in the past led the women's rights movement. Libertarians led the abolitionist movement. Not people who would have used that word because it's kind of a modern word, but people who believed in natural rights and self-ownership uh, led those movements. And I want us to remember that heritage and make it clear to people who do believe in peace, civil liberties, and a society in which all people can flourish. David Bowes is executive vice president at the Cato Institute and author of The Libertarian Mind, A Manifesto for Freedom. Get your copy at Amazon.com and Cato.org.